take a poll among all of us here today, <clears throat> probably those at least who are in their uh, 30s or older, in fact, probably those of you who are in your late 20s or older, and if I were to ask you this question, has your life turned out exactly like you thought it would back when you were in school? Right? Think about everything you've gone through since then, the direction your life has taken, where you've ended up at this point in your life, good, bad, or indifferent. If I ask you to respond to that question, has your life turned out just like you thought it would? I think we would be hard-pressed to find many people, if any, who would say, yes, everything in my life has gone exactly like I thought it would. Why? Well, of course, because none of us knows what tomorrow holds. And that doesn't stop us, obviously, from planning uh, for tomorrow and doing as much as we possibly can to see those plans come to fruition. So we plan for our future by attempting to order each step of the way through the journey, right, to ensure hopefully that all goes as planned as best we can, right? Uh, we, so we invest significant amounts of our money and time and resources and energy and focus into hopefully securing a future that we think is best for us and for our families all the way through to the end of our lives. So we buy insurance policies, right? We, uh, we create retirement funds and we make wills and we lock into careers that provide the best income and the best benefits and the most security for our future. We, we buy houses in specific areas so that our kids can go to certain schools and we look for particular neighborhoods that we think are safer than others. We gravitate toward relationships that benefit us the most personally and, and on and on the list goes while at the same try, time trying to uh, steer clear of anything that we think might jeopardize those future plans. And look, I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying that you shouldn't do some of those things for yourself or for your family, but, but what if that's not exactly how it's supposed to be? What if God has something different in mind for your future? In fact, what if God is calling you to something entirely different what if he's calling you to risk it all? Would you do it? Because first of all, we all know that life never turns out the way we think it will anyway. But far more importantly, God has always called his people to risk everything for him. I've heard Christians say that when you go out on a limb for Jesus or take a leap of faith, for Jesus, you're actually in the safest place you could ever be because at that moment you are in the center of his will. Well, look, in light of eternity, uh, that statement is true because as believers and followers of Jesus Christ, of course, our eternity is secure in him. But listen, when it comes to our lives on this earth, all bets are off. From the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament apostles and everywhere in between, we find men and women who were in the very center of God's will being persecuted, tortured, killed for the sake of Christ, including believers all around the world today. See, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan for our future. I just think that many of us are probably planning for the wrong future. We're putting all of our money and time and resources and energy and focus into our future on this earth instead of our future in eternity. Yet all throughout the scriptures, God called men and women to risk their future on this earth for the sake of their future and the future of his people in eternity. And I don't think he's changed at all in that regard. In fact, as you go throughout life, 
if you're listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit within you, at times you will actually find him asking you to risk what you have, to risk where you are, to risk what you've built, to risk the life you've secured for yourself and to risk the future you've been planning on for something entirely different than what you thought your life would look like. Right? M Moses wasn't planning on leading a couple million people out of Egypt while being pursued by the most powerful army on the earth at the time, but that's exactly what God called him to. Rahab wasn't planning on defying her own people and her own government by hiding enemy spies in her house at the imminent risk of her own life, but that's exactly what God called her to. David wasn't planning as a boy to have to stand up to a giant Philistine warrior while the rest of the Israelite army cowered in fear behind him, but that's exactly what God called him to. Listen, Mary wasn't planning on miraculously conceiving and carrying and raising the Messiah only to watch him brutally murdered on a Roman cross, but that is exactly what God called her to, and the apostles weren't planning on living through almost constant hardship and ultimately dying in the most horrific ways for the sake of the gospel, but that's exactly what God called them to. So look, what if God is calling you to a future that is different than the one you've been planning on? I'm simply asking, are you willing to risk everything you've planned to see God's plan realized in your life? Because I can tell you this, walking with God will require nothing less of you. And something that you learn how to do when you risk everything for Christ uh, is, is you learn how to trust him in ways you never thought you would have to. And we're going to see that in our story today as we continue working our way through uh, the biblical account of creation. Today's part two, by the way, of the sermon we started last week where we discussed the fact that walking with God means walking away from the world, which was also the first point in our outline, if you're keeping an outline, uh, it was the first point from the first half of this message. So today we're going to continue looking at what it means to truly walk with him as we finish chapter 6 and work our way through chapter 7 as well. So let's turn there together. If you have your Bible to chapter 6, we'll put it up on the screens as well. Uh, we'll start with verse 9 and read to the end of the chapter. So Genesis 6, verse 9 to the end of the chapter. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark, and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring flood waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. 
He did all that God commanded him. So because of the unabated wickedness of mankind and quite possibly the defilement of the genetic code of the human race by the sons of God, and we talked about all that last week, uh, God either way has to purge the earth of humanity in order to preserve a remnant of humankind that can carry on the line of Christ. And so he chooses to do that through Noah, a man who is said to have walked with God uh, in verse 9. And because he's going to wipe off of the face of the earth as many as 7 billion or more people at the time, including all of the animals in a massive flood, Noah's going to need a massive boat because he's not only saving himself and his family, of course, but a remnant of every animal kind as well. So God instructs him to build an ark. It's basically a well-ventilated floating barge made out of gopher wood, which is the equivalent of cypress today. 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. And contrary to the common modern assertion that there's no way the ark would have been large enough to carry all those animals and supplies, if the ark carried two of every family of animals, then there were roughly 700 pairs of animals. And even if the ark carried two of every species of animals, that means there were roughly 35,000 pairs of animals. And keeping in mind the, the fact that the average size of a land animal is smaller than a sheep, given the dimensions of the ark, it would have been large enough to carry 136,560 sheep in half of its capacity, which leaves more than enough room for people, food, water, and any other provisions they may have needed, which, by the way, uh, that has been accepted throughout history by Christian, Jewish, and secular researchers alike. The idea that the ark is a religious myth has for the most part been a modern phenomenon. Okay? In 275 BC, Barossus, a Babylonian historian, wrote of the ark, but of this ship that grounded, uh, grounded in Armenia, some part still remains in the mountains, and some get pitch from the ship by scraping it off. In AD 75, Josephus, a Jewish historian, said the locals collected relics from the ark and showed them off to this very day. He also said that all of the ancient historians he knew of wrote about the ark. In AD 180, Theophilus of Antioch wrote, the remains of the ark are to this day to be seen in the mountains. In 1876, a distinguished British statesman and author, Viscount James Bryce, climbed Mount Ararat and reported finding a four-foot-long piece of hand-tooled timber at an altitude of more than 13,000 feet. In 1936, a young British archaeologist named Hardwick Knight hiked across Ararat and discovered interlocking hand-tooled timbers at a height of 14,000 feet. I mean, the truth is there's a fascinating amount of research and findings concerning the ark, and yet, look, as tempting as it may be to focus on the evidence that may exist in support of the, uh, the viability of the biblical account and the claims about the ark itself, there's actually a much bigger story here and one that we need to focus on today, which is the story of what God was doing in and through the life of Noah. Because keep in mind, up to this point, Noah's life was on a completely different path. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, according to the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 2.5. And why do preachers preach? To lead others to God. Okay, I think probably the very last thing on Noah's mind would have been to build a giant boat for his family and some of the animals to escape a great disaster while the rest of the world, including all of the people that he'd been preaching to for 500 years, 
were annihilated. Of course, we, we don't know exactly how Noah made his living before the flood. We do know from chapter 9 that after the flood, he becomes a farmer and plants a vineyard. And the truth is, in his 600 years of living before the flood, 500 of those before building the ark, he probably learned to do a lot of different things, right? If, if, if you were alive for 500 years, you'd probably figure out how to do a lot of different things. And yet I don't think building a massive seafaring barge was probably one of them. Regardless of whatever it was he was occupied with before the flood, in addition to preaching, certainly it all came to a halt when God called him to build the ark. In fact, it's common in church tradition to teach that Noah was preaching salvation to the masses while he was building the ark. I, was, I remember being told that in Sunday school as a kid, warning the people of the impending flood while he's working on the ark. But actually that makes no sense because God clearly told Noah before he ever started building the ark that its sole purpose was to save Noah and his immediate family and some of the animals. You see, once Noah started building the ark, the preaching most likely would have stopped right? because there was no reason to preach anymore as God had put a strict limit on who would be able to board the ship. And so everything that Noah had worked for, whatever dwellings, houses he'd built, right, whatever land he'd developed for 500 years, whatever relationships he'd formed outside of his immediate family, whatever souls he'd hoped to save, everything that he'd worked for for centuries was all about to be gone forever. The very life that Noah had built for himself before God called him to this new future, that life was over. Every other pursuit abandoned while every ounce of his time and energy and resources and focus would now be devoted to a singular purpose, building this massive lifeboat. And it would require everything that Noah had. The truth is, for Noah to continue to walk with God, it would mean a profound upheaval of his entire life and a complete abandonment of his own plans. But sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. Sometimes walking with God means risking everything. Bible scholar John Stott once said, insistence on security is incompatible with the way of the cross. What daring adventures the incarnation and atonement were. What a breach of convention and decorum that Almighty God should renounce his privileges in order to take human flesh and bear human sin. Jesus had no security except in his Father, so to follow Jesus is always to accept at least a measure of uncertainty, danger, and rejection for his sake. Okay, look. If you're not ready to risk everything for Christ, then you're not ready for the future he has planned for you. If, if you're not ready to risk everything for Christ, well, then you're not ready for the future he has planned for you because when you're walking with God, there will absolutely be times in your life when you're going to have to lay it all on the line. Of course, the alternative, and one I fear uh, far too many Christians choose today, is to play it safe, to choose the way of comfort and security and safety, risking as little as possible in the process. But listen, Noah didn't save humankind and animal kind from a worldwide flood by playing it safe. Moses didn't lead God's people to freedom from their captivity in Egypt by playing it safe. 
Joshua didn't lead them into the promised land by playing it safe. Look, Gideon didn't defeat 135,000 Midianite soldiers with only 300 of God's chosen by playing it safe. The church didn't spread across the ancient world like wildfire in the midst of brutal persecution by playing it safe. And of course, Jesus didn't defeat death and the powers of hell by playing it safe. The truth is, You'll never accomplish or experience all that God created you to accomplish and experience in this life by playing it safe. Charles Spurgeon once said, they who navigate little streams and shallow creeks know but little of the God of tempests, but they who do business in great waters, these see as wonders in the deep. I've said it many times before, you can have great risk without great success but you cannot have great success without great risk. Okay, you will never accomplish or experience all that God created you to accomplish and experience in this life by playing it safe. So, so why then don't we take more risks for Christ? Well, in part, it's because we don't fully trust him, which we'll talk more about in a moment, but it's also because of fear of what happen, uh, might happen to us personally. Right? We've become so conditioned in our culture to seek comfort first. And listen, I'll be the first one to tell you, I have a deep appreciation for this country that we live in and the innumerable blessings and prosperity and comfort that we enjoy every day because of it. I'm convinced there's no better place to live on this earth than America. But listen, seeking comfort first is often antithetical to the call of Christ on our lives because sometimes God calls us to do hard things. Sometimes he calls us to lay it all in the line. Sometimes he calls us to risk everything in order to accomplish his plan for our lives and the lives of others. Yet we've become so averse to anything that threatens our comfort or safety. In fact, it's common in much of the American church today to believe that God only wants us to be comfortable and safe. And the net result of that kind of thinking is a church that becomes completely ineffective powerless because we refuse to do hard things for God. And so look, if you believe that God only wants you to be comfortable and safe and prosperous in this life, then it may be time for you to go back and read through the Bible again because I'm pretty certain that he loved all those people in the Bible just as much as he loves us and yet he constantly led them away from comfort, away from safety, away from prosperity, away from certainty, away from predictability into a life of great unknowns, difficult situations and circumstances that required them to risk everything and at times to sacrifice everything, including their very lives. But you won't ever be able to accept that, that God actually wants you to take great risks for him as long as your focus is on your own comfort and security. J.R.R. Tolkien wrote, living by faith includes the call to something greater than cowardly self-preservation. Okay, the bottom line is we have to get over this idea in the church that risk is bad or somehow not God's will for us. We have to get over that kind of thinking. The Apostle Paul said, I do not account my life of any value. How do you think that statement would square up in our culture today? I'm talking about church culture. 
I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace, of the grace of God, Acts 20, 24. No, wait a minute. Today we'd say, Paul, hold on. No, you don't understand. See, Paul, you have to learn to love yourself. Take care of yourself before you can love or take care of anyone else. Look, I'm not saying we should hate ourselves, not at all, but clearly Paul considered the call of Christ on his own life of more value than his own life itself. We love to quote Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, as if to say I can achieve all my dreams on this earth for a better life because that's what Jesus wants for me. But we never read the two verses that immediately precede it. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. And I know how to abound. In any, in every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things. Through him who strengthens me, Philippians 4, 11 through 13. In other words, I can risk it all for Christ. And even when that leaves me facing great need in my own life, I know I'll be okay because I can do all things through him who strengthens me, strengthens me. Why? Why does he need to strengthen me? Because I'm weak from risking everything for Christ. So, so look, what has he called you to do? What has he called you to be a part of? What has he called you to sacrifice? What has God called you to risk everything for? You can be sure of this. Whatever it is, you will never accomplish or experience all that God has created you to accomplish and experience in this life until you're willing to risk everything for the sake of that call. Because the truth is, whether we like it or not, sometimes we're called by God to risk everything for him. Fact is, sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. So are you willing to risk it all for him? Because, well, he risked it all for you. Let's keep reading chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean, and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah, and after seven days the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So after about a hundred years, depending on how you reconcile the math. There are some scholars who say 70 years, some say uh, 120 years. Most agree it was 100. We don't know for certain, but the, for the better part of a century, Noah abandoning every other pursuit in his life risks everything to build this boat. 
And then he loads two of every kind of animal into it along with some extras to account for the sacrifices after the flood is over and then all of the supplies and provisions they would need to survive the journey and then everything is ready. The work is done, the ark is built, a hundred years of frenetic activity, the supplies are all loaded, the animals are there if not all inside. The only thing that is missing is the water which doesn't come for another Seven days. So they wait. Hour after agonizing hour, they wait. Day after excruciating day, they wait. Can you imagine the anticipation? The stress? The ominous sense of foreboding as Noah and his family gathered at the ark, surrounded by thousands of animals. The culmination of everything they've worked toward for a century. And now, nothing. For a solid week, they wait, and not one drop of rain. Yet they knew it was coming, but all they could do was wait. And if that wasn't hard enough, Noah also knew that this storm would not only flood the earth, but that it was going to wipe out all of life left on the earth. So after 500 years of preaching, 500 years of preaching, righteousness to lost souls. Noah has seven days of silence to ponder the fact that apart from his immediate family, he hasn't made one single convert. And get notice that Noah still trusts God. In fact, the depth of trust that Noah must have had in God at this point in his life is truly hard to imagine. How many of us Honestly, after doing exactly what God has called us to do for our entire lives without one single success story, how many of us would still trust him? The truth is sometimes that's what walking with God looks like. Sometimes walking with God means trusting him when it seems like nothing is happening. Missionary and author Elizabeth Elliot once said, whatever dark tunnel we may be called upon to travel through, God has been there. Okay, in that week before the storm, there was no celebration. There was no preaching. There was no more building or preparing. Only silence and the solemn realization that everything Noah had worked for on this earth, including the countless lost souls he'd preached to, it was all about to disappear forever. What was God doing? Why seven days of silence? Lord, why do we have to wait for what you've already promised would come? I'm already losing everything and everyone I've ever known outside of my family. God, the, the last thing I need is a week of silence. A week where nothing happens, with nothing to do but think about everything I've lost after being obedient to your call my entire life. I can't imagine all of the questions and all of the emotion that Noah must have felt, we elevate these people in our minds to perfection. No, they were human beings. Can you imagine the emotion he must have been feeling? But he trusted God nonetheless, even when it seemed like nothing was happening. So after all those years of preaching, he trusted God even when, when uh, no one was responding to the truth of the message. And now in this week leading up to the storm, Noah faithfully waits on God, trusting that God was going to do what he said he would do. The fact is, uh, we don't know 
why God waited seven days for the rain to start. In the ancient rabbinical writings, the compilation of writings called the Jewish Midrash, it's written that God waited seven days before the flood in order to grieve for the world. Whatever the reason for the seven days, what we know for certain is that it was not wasted time because God never wastes one moment of time. Psalm 37, 18 says, The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Who are the blameless? That's us. Everyone who's been made blameless in Christ. And he says that he knows every one of our days, even the ones where it seems like nothing is happening. You see, there's divine purpose behind every second of your life, which means God not only never wastes his time, but listen, God never wastes your time either. Now, maybe you've risked something big for God. Maybe you've pursued that calling in your life. Maybe you've given up other opportunities and sacrificed comfort and security to answer that call, and yet it seems like nothing is happening. Listen, don't you lose your nerve. Don't you give up now. Because God never wastes a moment of time and he's not wasting yours. When he calls you to something, there is a purpose for every single step in that journey, even the steps when it seems like you aren't going anywhere. And by the way, inactivity on your part does not equate to inactivity on God's part. In fact, according to Jesus in 517, God is always working on your behalf, always, even when it seems like nothing is happening. And yet I've known so many professing believers over my lifetime who build their ark, who spend years building and crafting and supplying the call of God in their life only to abandon that call because there's a period of time where it seems like nothing significant is happening or maybe they haven't seen the fruit of that ministry that they expected to see. Do you understand that's the equivalent of Noah spending a hundred years building and crafting and supplying the ark and then walking away from it during the seven days before the flood because there was no rain. Nothing seemed to be happening. That sounds ridiculous to us, I know, but that's exactly what we're doing when we walk away from the call of God on our lives. When you experience a season of time that seems unproductive or unfruitful spiritually, and all of a sudden you begin to question everything you've worked toward, everything you've built for Christ, the entire foundation of your calling, and so you walk away from your ministry. You walk away from the church. You you walk away from those relationships that you've invested your life into and leave that calling in the dust because it seemed like nothing was happening right when God was preparing you for the greatest journey of your life. Listen, when you give everything you can for Christ and nothing seems to be happening as a result, don't give up. When people aren't responding like you think they should, don't give up. When the ministry isn't taking off like you thought it would, don't give up when you've been preparing for something for so long and yet it seems like everything is ground to a halt. Don't give up when the vision God has given you for your future seems to have stalled out. Don't you dare give up because God is always working on your behalf and if you will simply double down on that commitment and stay the course, I'm telling you, God will lead you on the greatest journey of your life. Just remember, when it seems like nothing is happening, much is actually happening because God isn't wasting his time or yours. At times, that's simply 
what walking with God looks like. In fact, when it seems like nothing is happening, often that's just the calm before the storm. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 11 to the end of the chapter. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. Rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Japheth and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth. 150 days. This is perhaps the most well-known story in all of biblical scripture and not just in Jewish or Christian cultures, by the way. In fact, there are many ancient and modern cultures outside of Judaism and Christianity who are not only familiar with but also recognize as historically valid uh, this story or at least some version of it. Some of the oldest writings that we have that have ever been discovered uh, are available to us, came out of Mesopotamia from the Bronze Age, including the Sumerian writings, the Gilgamesh Epic, the Atrahasis Tablets, and others, all who record a great flood in their history from the same time period as the Genesis account. The Atrahasis Tablets translated in the late 1800s say there was a great flood sent by the gods to destroy human life and only the good man, Atrahasis, his name actually translates uh, literally as exceedingly wise. So only the good man, the exceedingly wise man was warned of the impending deluge by the god A who instructed him to build an ark to save himself. And so Atrahasis heeded the words of the God, loading two of every kind of animal into the ark that were sent to him by his God, just as in the biblical account. And by doing so, he preserved human and animal life on earth. Interesting, isn't it? In the Gilgamesh epic, one of the earliest surviving works of literature that we have in existence today, in fact, some say that it is the oldest writing that we have, which was discovered in the mid-19th century in the ruins of the great library in Nineveh. And in that story, Gilgamesh is the main character who, interestingly enough, is one of the rulers uh, listed on the Sumerian king list that we talked about last week, if you remember. And as the story goes, there's another character who's introduced named Utnapishtim. He's the character most like uh, the biblical Noah in the story who builds a ship to weather the great deluge or the great flood that destroys all of mankind. And so he takes the seeds of all living things, all his relatives, cattle and wild beasts onto the ship to save them from the storm. And then after the flood begins to subside, he releases birds to find land and eventually the ship lands on a mountain 
and the flood is over. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In ancient Hindu writings, there's a story of a Hindu god who informs the king that there is an all-destructive deluge which was coming very soon, and so the king builds a huge boat which houses his family. Then he collects nine types of seeds and the animals to repopulate the earth, and then eventually the flood ends and the oceans and seas recede. In the sacred book of the Mayan people from the Americas, there's a great flood story. Likewise, from the Chow dynasty in China, there is a record of a catastrophic flood that altered the land forever. It's one of the oldest historical records ever recorded in China. We have ancient Akkadian texts that describe a devastating flood of cosmic proportions sent by the gods while Ninurta, an exalted lord, rides upon the deluge. I could go on and on today about ancient pagan cultures and modern religions as well who have very similar worldwide flood stories in their history, including Islam, which recognizes the flood story of Noah as historically valid. In fact, the local Muslim population who live in and around the region of Mount Ararat in Turkey today, all of them claim that the remnants of Noah's Ark are sitting atop Ararat to this day. So people ask, well, okay, but why are the names and some of the details in many of these stories different? than the biblical account if it's true. Why would there be multiple gods in some of the stories instead of the one true creator God who we find in the Bible? Well, obviously, the story would have been handed down from Noah orally to his descendants who in turn would have spread the story over time and distance and eventually across other cultures and religions who ultimately co-opted and corrupted the story as their own, just as we see some other religions today who claim to have their roots in Christianity, even some claiming to still be Christian, and yet they've added to God's word with their own revelations and versions of the biblical account of the gospel corrupting God's word and God's message. The point being, we have tremendous amounts of evidence in the form of historical records from cultures all over the world that there was indeed a worldwide flood, just like the one described here in Genesis 7. And yet again, the purpose of this story is actually not to try and prove itself historically accurate, even though it is. This was written to God's people under the assumption that we would already believe that he was telling us the truth. The purpose of this story is to inform us of the links that God goes to to provide salvation for his people, even when everything in our lives and on this earth seems to be conspiring against us. Right? That, that's what he did for us through Noah. That's what he did for us through Moses. That's what he's still doing for us today through Jesus Christ. This is a story about those who walk with God even when no one else will and no matter what else is happening in their lives. Right after being rejected day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year by the people he was preaching to after witnessing the overwhelming increase of evil on the earth in spite of Noah's attempts to spread the truth about God and after having to say goodbye to the only life and home he had ever known for the past 600 years. Noah is now helplessly floating on a massive wooden barge being tossed around on violent seas while trying to keep his family and thousands of animals alive with absolutely no idea of when or how the storm will ever end. You see, walking with God not only means trusting him when it seems like nothing is happening, but walking with God means trusting him when it seems like everything is happening all at once. Right? And I'm not sure which is harder on us, 
when it seems that nothing is happening or when it seems like everything is happening. But the key in either case is that we trust him in every moment, whether in silence or storm. We must learn to trust God and not give up. The 19th century preacher Richard Fuller once wrote, You must stay upon the Lord and come what may. Winds, waves, cross seas, thunder, lightning, frowning rocks, roaring breakers. No matter what, you must lash yourself to the helm and hold fast your confidence in God's faithfulness, his covenant engagement, his everlasting love in Christ Jesus. Okay, sometimes walking with God means riding out the storms of life. But, I mean, honestly, what's the alternative? Giving up in the midst of the storm. Allowing ourselves to drown under the weight of our circumstances. And it's easy to feel like we're in control of everything in our lives until everything goes sideways and then we panic and plead with God to do something to take control of the situation as if he were not already in control. But that's just it. God is in control. All along, because God is sovereign all along. He's sovereign over the silence, and he's sovereign over the storm. Psalm 135, 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. You see, God is not made, God is not made into something more or less based on how much we trust him. God is not dependent upon or commanded by our level of trust. He's not made any less able by our lack of trust or any more able by an abundance of it. God is God. He is immutable, unchangeable, steadfast, all-powerful, and unequaled. Our depth of trust or a lack of it does not change him or wrestle one ounce of sovereignty away from him. What we do or do not do relative to the measure of trust that we have in him in any given situation in our lives does not alter God in the equation one iota because he is unalterable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You understand, our choice to trust God does not change God. Your choice to trust God does not change God. It does, however, profoundly change you. This is why we have to get over our fear of risk and allow ourselves to be in situations and circumstances and places where we have no other choice but to trust God because the odds are stacked against us. The outcome is unclear. It may not be entirely safe and there's no way to predict the results. Sometimes walking with God means trusting him so much that we risk our reputations, we risk our income, we risk our popularity, we risk our security, we even risk our own necks with no guarantee of how it's all going to turn out in the end. Because it is in the face of tremendous difficulties where the only thing left for us to do is to trust him to do what only he can. It is in the midst of those storms that he does his very best work in our lives. Yet that will require you to trust him, even when everything seems to be working against you. Okay, the truth is, when you walk with God, there will be times when he asks you to risk what you have, to risk where you are in life, to risk what you've built, to risk the life you've secured for yourself, and to risk the future you've been planning for yourself for something entirely different than what you thought your life would look like. 
Look, if you don't trust him in the very depths of your being, you will come up with every excuse in the world as to why that risk isn't right for you. If I've seen it once, I've seen it a thousand times, probably most of those in my own life, by the way. Before I finally came to terms with the fact that the only way I was ever going to accomplish and experience all that God had created me to accomplish and experience in this life was to risk everything I'd built and pursued for the sake of call, the call of Christ on my life. Listen, until you get to that place, you'll dismiss the call when it seems too risky. And you'll go back to planning your future in the safest, most predictable, risk-free ways possible. Because if you're not ready to risk everything for Christ, well, then you're not ready for the future he has planned for you. And again, I'm not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't plan for a future. I just think that many of us are probably planning for the wrong future by putting all of our money and time and resources and energy and focus into our future on this earth instead of our future in eternity. And so, listen, if you only take one thing away from this story about Noah and the flood, know this. This world and everything in it is going to pass away. And the only thing left, the only thing left will be the results of the money and time and talent and resources and energy and focus that you invested into eternity. And I'll just tell you, the more you invest in eternal things, the more you must be willing to risk earthly things. It's a fact. The more you invest in eternal things, the more you must be willing to risk earthly things. Why? Well, because that's what walking with God looks like. 